think this is a message of hope for people because whatever you're going through through Christmas time, through the holiday season, right? A lot of people have lost loved ones. A lot of people go through suffering during this time thinking about people they wish they were with. Maybe they're far away from family. Maybe they're long gone. Maybe there's just tension in your family and you actually hate getting together with your family. I think this text actually applies to those situations because here God is showing himself as the one who will take care of us in ways that we least expect it. Welcome to the Christmas edition of Listener, a crew podcast. I'm your host, Sam Holland. Today's guest is Dr. Patrick Schreiner, Assistant Professor of New Testament Language and Literature at Western Seminary. Patrick was my Greek professor last year at Western, and when I invited him to record a Christmas conversation with me, he suggested we talk about the wise men, which is a nativity topic that's always intrigued me. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. You have two Gospels that speak about the birth of Jesus in a very specific way, Luke and Matthew. Um, Luke gives us a perspective of Jesus' birth, um, more from Mary's perspective, while Matthew gives it a little bit more from Joseph's perspective. But you have two different visits, one from shepherds in Luke and one from wise men in Matthew. And it actually hits on the themes that both Gospels are going to cover for the rest of their Gospel, which is really interesting in itself just to know that already Matthew's telling you what am I going to be talking about this whole gospel? And Luke's telling you the same thing. So shepherds, um, Luke's going to emphasize the poor and the working class and maybe the marginalized, while Matthew is going to be emphasizing uh, kingship throughout his entire gospel. So he begins, this is Jesus, this is the son of David, this is the son of Abraham, he's the king, he's come. Now who comes to worship him? It's these foreign magi, as they call them, and there's some debate about who they are, but it seems like they're kind of king-like figures from beyond Jerusalem, and they come to worship the new king. So already you're kind of getting this hint of what Matthew's going to be speaking about in terms of his whole gospel. And this hits on the theme that it's not he's going to be worshipped by those least expected to worship him. So you expect Jerusalem to worship the king, and you've got these magi from the east. We don't know who they are, and I think that's kind of the point. We don't know who they are, but they come and they worship this new king who has been born. And so Matthew's already pushing us to begin thinking, as Advent, as Jesus comes, who's going to be the true worshipers of the king? It might be the people you least expect. So I know that we sing about these three kings, but I also know it, scripture doesn't say there's actually three of them. We don't know if there were three and it doesn't call them kings as far as I know. Um, so does that king, does that come from that being a theme of Matthew that they would call them kings? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's actually a debated point. Um, they, they don't call them kings. They call them magi, magoi in Greek. Uh, which some people think are like astrologers, and they come from the east, which if, if you know your geography, Babylon's in the east. So we're already getting some people maybe from around the Babylon area who are coming to worship him. In terms of the number, we don't know the number. It doesn't say, but there's three gifts that are given. So that's why we have the number three. So there could have been more magi, but we have three gifts, so we associate with um, three magi, which could be correct. It could not be correct. Now, early church fathers looked into those gifts and they saw symbolism in that. We're not going to get into that. But um, your other question was, wh why do we call them kings? Um, well, there's Old Testament texts, actually, that speak about kings coming to worship the king of Israel. 
And so we have a text like Psalm 72, 8 through 11. Uh, and it says, may he rule from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. So may the king of Israel ru- rule over this whole land. May desert tribes kneel before him and his enemies lick the dust. May kings of Tarshish and the coasts and islands bring tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow in homage to him. All nations serve him. So you have texts like that in the background where you've got these people coming from the outside and they're labeled kings. And so while historically some would say, well, these aren't kings, these are magi, magi were also associated with king's court. So I would, I would view them historically and biblically, theologically, which is in terms of the whole narrative scripture, as they're associated with the king's court. They're representatives of these kings, mm-hmm. so therefore we can view them as kings. And I could actually go to other texts as well that talk about kings coming to worship um, this new king. So I do think it's a kings coming to worship the new king. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so they came from the east, Mm -hmm. and Babylon is in the east. Mm -hmm. So is there some connection between the Babylonian exile Mm -hmm. and the fact that these magi would have some sort of something in writing that's telling them some prophecy that has to do with a star and with a king being born Mm -hmm. and Jerusalem, I guess, Mm -hmm. because that's where they go. Yep, yeah. Yeah, great question. Uh, One of the interesting things is if you think back to what happened to Israel as they went into exile, is that um, all of the stuff in the temple, the gold was taken from the temple. And you think about King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel when he's drinking from those golden goblets and then God judges him partially because he's, he's using those those things flippantly. Now, so, so if you kind of connect that with what's happening, these kings are coming from these, maybe and the text doesn't say this, but maybe they're coming back and returning the gifts of the temple to the king, the new king, without knowing it. So they're bringing him gifts, and he's actually the new king priest in that Mm -hmm. sense, which is a really cool connection. You also have, in in terms of the star, if you look back to Numbers 24, 17 through 19, this is uh, when Balaam is told to curse Israel. Um, and he, he's a foreigner, he's a Gentile, and he's, he's, he's like a prophet of their land. And, he's, and this other king tells him, hey, curse this, these, these new wanderers. We don't know what they're doing. And he goes to curse them, and all that comes out of his mouth is blessing. And the king's like, what are you doing? You can't, you can't, you can't bless them. I, I called on you to curse these people. And one of his blessings is kind of a prophecy, and this is what he says. He says, I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near a star will come from Jacob. So here's the text where we have the star and the Magi are following the star. A star will come from Jacob. A scepter, which is the, the, what the king holds, mm-hmm. will arise from Israel. He will smash the forehead of Moab and strike down all the Shethites. Edom will become his possession. Everyone will be triumphant. Anyways, all this to say, Balaam's already looking kind of future, having a prophecy of this star, which is a representative of the king. So if you go back to ancient Near Eastern history and first century history, you can actually see that stars are kind of representative of kings. So you have this star kingship, this prophecy about this king coming from Israel, and these magi seeing this star and knowing, I've got to go worship this other king that's been born. Mm-hmm. And in the text of Matthew, that's why Herod's so upset. Mm -hmm. Because the text begins with 
Jesus being born in the land of another king who is Herod. And now a new king's on the scene. And whenever you have two kings, if you read any story, two kings is not a good thing in terms of there's going to be fighting. And that's what happens with Herod. He opposes this new king who comes. Hmm. So let's talk about this star. I mean, you've mentioned in the Old Testament, even kings and stars, there's a correlation there. Yep. Mm -hmm. Just like in The Lion King, if you've seen that movie... I have many times. I mean, they think <laughs> that the stars are, well, do they think they're kings or they're ancestors? Or? Yeah, kings, ancestors, angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. They think they're angels. Yeah. So this is a common theory. But let's talk about the star for a minute. And even looking outside the Bible, isn't it true? I don't know if you've read about this, but mm-hmm. that Chinese and even Korean astrologers saw a star mm-hmm. in 5 BC, mm-hmm. which because the Christian calendar is off, Mm -hmm. that would have been at the birth of Christ. So there's people in other parts of the world recording that there is something in the sky that's not normal. Right, right. Yeah, there's a huge debate about how they follow this star, what's happening. Honestly, I've looked into some of the debate, and it's really complicated. I don't want to get into it. It could be a star. There's a few options. It could be an angel because they viewed stars as kind of beings that were probably in the heavens. Mm. So some actually argue that that's an angel that's actually leading them, and they just view it as a star. It could be a nova or a comet, which is like a moving star that kind of moves and follows and shows them where to go. Um, th- there is some history, as you said, that points to it maybe a star moving at that point and showing them where to go. I don't think the point of Matthew is probably to tell us exactly what was happening there. I think the symbolism probably is more important in terms of what the star stands for, how they got there. Matthew just doesn't seem very interested in giving us like the history of peeling back. Okay, where was this star? How is it leading them? That's really interesting to think about, and I've thought about it some, but actually what I've come to see is that I don't really know exactly how it worked. What I do know is that I trust the scriptures and that they're telling us something about this king. And so I actually like to focus not so much on exactly what happened, but rather, hey, what does this stand for? It, it's real. It's historically accurate, I, w- I would say, but also at the same time saying, hmm, there's more going on with the star here than meets the eye. Um, Isaiah 9-2, just another text from the Old Testament that I thought of while we think about the star is uh, Isaiah says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. So a star gives off light, obviously. And Isaiah is predicting that, hey, the people who live outside of the land of Israel are going to see a great light. It's dawning upon them. So I tend to think that star is actually pushing us back to Balaam's prophecy, Numbers 24, to Isaiah 9 and saying, look, now Gentiles, and if you think of people from the east, um, this is the cross-cultural king who is coming. In other words, Israel thinks it's just their king, but already in the Old Testament, Yahweh had said, all nations will come and worship me. And so if you look kind of at the Christmas theme of Matthew 2, I think one of the big things I point to people is I say, hey, look, even if you're the one expecting the king, sometimes the people expecting the king can be the one who actually reject him. Mm-hmm. And the people who are not expecting him in the same sense, or you might not think they're expecting him, they're the ones worshiping him. Mm-hmm. And so this text, as Jews would have read this, would have been like a hugely like, what, how are the, 
how are the Jews or those in Jerusalem rejecting the king of the Jews while the Magi from the east are worshiping him? That's the reversal of this text, Mm -hmm. that you have the people, the unexpected people worshiping the king, while the expected people don't worship the king, Mm -hmm. Um, which... Again, that's just a huge challenge to us uh, as as we move into this season where we think about Jesus's birth. Are we worshiping as him as the true king as he really is? And are we opening our arms and saying, who else is worshiping this king with us? I think those are good questions to ask ourselves as we come to this text. So we've talked a little bit about the symbolic nature of the star and mm-hmm. Jesus is referred to as the morning star, right? That's Have right. we talked about that? Yeah, he, he's referred to the morning star in Second Peter, I think it is. And so throughout the scriptures, he's just viewed as this kind of new light is dawning uh, on the cosmos, on this universe. And he's coming and all nations will see it. And so I actually don't remember that specific reference in Second Peter, but it, it's the morning star will dawn upon you. And he's referring to Jesus there. Where is Peter? Where would Peter have been getting that? Yeah. I think Peter, being a Jew, he probably would have been getting that again from his Old Testament. Um, so from some of those texts that we looked at, you could also go to Revelation 12. It speaks about stars as well. Um, but especially Numbers 24 that we already looked at, looked at and Isaiah 9. Yeah. Okay, so we have these magi who could be representing kings from other places. How are we supposed to interpret their worshiping this king? Are they worshiping him as God? What would it have been like? Or are they polytheists? Is this just one of many gods that I know we can't know for sure? Right. That's that's a great question. And, and there is debate around that. I mean, if you look at their words, they're going to worship him, the king of the Jews. And so what I think they're recognizing Probably at this point, they're not recognizing that he's the son of God in the sense that we think he's the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. What they're probably recognizing is that there is a new king that's on the scene that's going to be a ruler over all other kings. So he's the king of the Jews, and they're from other nations coming to worship him because they recognize his sovereignty over, I don't know if I'd say over all the other kings, but a unique sovereignty to this Jesus figure who is born. And so because of their astrology and they see the star and they associate that with kings and we, Matthew's readers, are thinking of those Old Testament texts, they're saying this king is a very unique king that has been born. And so we want to go and worship him. So what I would say, though, is because they're kind of following that line, as Matthew will reveal and the rest of the Gospels will reveal, he's even more unique than we think and than they think. So they're not denying in some sense the godship of Jesus Christ, who, that he's the second person, they probably just don't have that in their mind at this point. And so they're saying, this is a unique king from Israel. We're going to go worship him. There's, there's something going on with this king where we need to offer him gifts. And they leave. And I, I think that's, that's a true worship of the king. In other words, these are true believers in the king. Um, I think later on, as, as they begin to learn about who this Jesus figure was, they'd probably realize, okay, he was more even than he th- we thought he was. But I think a lot of people go through that in the first century in terms of who is this guy, and then they realize, oh, so much more is happening with him than we initially imagined. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think historically is happening. Now, I know you said we're not going to talk about the symbolism of the gifts, mm. but let's just talk a little bit about it okay. because it's kind of intriguing. Gold and frankincense and myrrh are mentioned in other places yeah. in scripture, right. most notably in connection to Solomon. Yep. In fact, 
one of something I read is that they're mentioned when Solomon is arriving at his wedding Mm. and he has his army with him Mm -hmm. as if he's prepared for battle to defend his bride. And so I just wondered if you had read about that or maybe the pupil has become the teacher at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Teach me about the Solomon thing. I actually hadn't read into the Solomon thing. Um, What I do know is like Irenaeus, he associated the gold for royalty. So that connects with Mm -hmm. Solomon, gold for king, the frankincense for divinity, Hmm. and then the myrrh for death and burial. Mm. And so he said, or someone near him, I think, said, the myrrh casts a shadow over the two other gifts, which is really interesting because you've got this, here's the king, here's actually the son of God, the frankincense. Um, But you've got this death and burial, which is coming because myrrh was used for that death and burial. So maybe... Matthew is actually hinting at us, this king will only become king by his death and his burial. And if you actually trace this all through Matthew, when does he return to Jerusalem? It's only at the end of the gospel that he returns. And what happens? Well, he's di- he, he's crucified. He died, he, he dies and he's buried. And so in one sense, um, Matthew is setting up his whole narrative saying, as the king comes into his city, because Bethlehem is the king, the city of David, mm-hmm. the city of the king. Herod, the king there, and all the Jews reject him. These magi come from the east and they worship him. But then the rest of the gospel, he's in Galilee doing his ministry, which is north. And Galileans have weird accents. You learn about that where when Peter, he gets found out, hey, you follow this guy from Galilee. You have that weird accent. So Galilee is kind of like the in the sticks and in, in that sense, like who, who, and they say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Nazareth is in Galilee. So Jesus spends, according to the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, most of his ministry in Galilee. Then he comes back to Jerusalem to actually go through that process of myrrh. In other words, to die and be buried and to rise again. And that's his actually enthronement is what Matthew mm-hmm. describes it as. That's why they put a crown of thorns on his head. Mm-hmm. That's why they put a robe on him. That's why Pilate says, this is the king of the Jews. You're supposed to make the connection between those two different things. So again, um, whether you take those gifts as symbolic, some would say, now we shouldn't take them as symbolic. You just read them as they are. Early church fathers did. Um, In the days of King Hezekiah, um, they came and they took silver, gold, spices, and fine olive oil in Isaiah 39.2 from the temple. So I already mentioned that kind of temple thing. So these gifts, that's where I've made the connection, at least that these gifts might be the temple gifts themselves that they're returning to the king. But you can teach me more about Solomon because that'd be great. I'd love to learn more about that. <laughs> I don't know if you're ready. <laughs> you can take my class. Yeah. <laughs> well, so Christmas is coming mm-hmm. and this is a part of our Christmas story that we hear. We read it every year. We hear it at church. We tell our kids this story. So tell us again, what is our takeaway from this aspect of the story in Matthew? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's a great question. There's so much going on in this text. Um, there's also connections with Psalm two, and I don't want to just be like connection geek here, but I kind of am. And in Psalm 2, Yahweh, if you go back, this is this huge psalm. Yahweh says, I've appointed my son, my anointed one, 
on Zion, my holy hill, and the kings of the earth, they're actually going to rage and go against this king. So there's all these Greek word connections between the two, Mm. Matthew 2 and Psalm 2. And the point of Matthew 2 is that God, God, Yahweh himself, has set up his king in Bethlehem. So he's in Bethlehem. He's in the city of David. This is the promise fulfiller. This is the king from David's line. So I think one of the big points from this text is obviously God has made a promise to Israel. And he's fulfilling it now. What does that mean for you? He's made promises to you and he will fulfill them. The whole Bible is about promise and fulfillment. God says he's going to do something and because he's God, he will do it. But one of the shocking things is he will do it in ways that you least expect. And so this king comes to his own city and they reject him. And so he's fulfilling his promises, but at the same time, it's not going the way you thought it would. And so I think this is a message of hope for people because whatever you're going through, through Christmas time, through the holiday season, right? A lot of people have lost loved ones. A lot of people go through suffering during this time, thinking about people they wish they were with. Maybe they're far away from family. Maybe they're long gone. Maybe there's just tension in your family and you actually hate getting together with your family. Um, I think this text actually applies to those situations because here God is showing himself as the one who will take care of us in ways that we least expect it. And so we can know that God is for us. We can know that God is for us because he has sent his son, that he will fulfill his promises to us. And despite the fact that we think everything is going south, he's actually working everything for our good, as Roman says. So he, he's, he's orchestrating everything in our life so that we will know him more. And I think that's what's happening in this text as well. When Jews read it, they'd be like, no, how in the world can they, the people of Jerusalem and Herod, not recognize their true king? Well, it's the Magi who come. And so as you look at this scene, and actually you're supposed to be in utter shock of this scene. I, I think we know this story so well. We're not shocked anymore. We're like, yeah, of course, Magi worship him. We know this story. But if you're shocked at it, then you go back and you look at your life and you say, what am I shocked at? Like, maybe we're asking the question, how could God give me the life that I have? How could I not be gifted as this other person? How how could I struggle with these things, whether it's sin or whatever it is? And I, I think this passage is showing us God loves us. God will be faithful to us. God has provided a king for us. If you follow him, Unlike the people of Jerusalem and, and like the Magi, if you worship him, he's going to bring you into his kingdom. And it might not be all pretty here, here and now, as Peter says, you're going to go through many tribulations. But this king is going to set up his kingdom, and the kingdom's going to be, going to be really good. So if we follow this narrative down, I know I've been talking for a little while now, but if we follow this narrative down, what does Herod do? He kills all the baby boys in Bethlehem because he's trying to search for them. And what does Jesus do? He says, I will shepherd my people. The quotation from Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2 is the one that Matthew uses. And he says, unlike Herod, who is a type of Pharaoh who kills the babies, right? Mm -hmm. He said, unlike Herod, I'm going to actually provide for my people. A shepherd feeds his flock. He protects them from enemies and he provides a good home for them. So then you're going back to Psalm 1 or or Psalm... um, 23 as well. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He's, he's our shepherd. So this king, unlike Herod, is the one who's actually going to take care of us. And I think that's, that's why that quote right in the middle comes there. This is the king, unlike Herod. This is the true, the good king that has come. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to get Listener a Christmas gift, please review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.